You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 135 for April 25th, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's episode, Bill, Doug, and I talk about the Northwest Anthropological Conference and archaeologists curating artifacts, or not. So grab a bottle of water because we're going into the Indiana Jones warehouse and because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. everybody welcome to the show joining me today are doug in scotland hey everyone and bill in california good morning all right so guys we uh have a kind of a hodgepodge show today a little bit um i want to first acknowledge on this show uh and thank Stephen wagner for hosting the last episode of the crm archaeology podcast that would have been episode 134 and if you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out because he brought on special guest Bill Ochter and Doug was there as well. And they actually rolled, a, I think, a Dungeons & Dragons dice. I don't know which one. Probably one of the ones with lots of lots of sides on it. But uh, they rolled one of those and had this random encounters table and matched that with uh, these different topics in archaeology. And just kind of like when they were done discussing a topic, they rolled the dice again and randomly picked another topic. I think it was great. So it was... Uh, it was a it was a pretty fun, interesting episode, and uh, you should all definitely go back and listen to that. I think what a lot of people don't know is that's how we decide our podcast. Anyway, that's pretty much what we're doing. I think that's how we decide our careers. Like we we put a different shovel buzz post on a on a table. We just roll the dice, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, mine was yeah. kind of flat and one sided that only had archaeologist on one side. So <laughs> I ended up becoming what I got randomly. Nice, nice. All right. So, Bill, uh, we're going to talk first. Um, as we're recording this, you and I went to the Northwest Anthropological Conference 2018 uh, at the end of March in Boise, Idaho, uh, where you're from. And I got to see Bill's dissertation site, the River, uh, what was it? The River City? The River, what was Street. It? River, River Street. River Street. Yeah, the River Street Project. Bill's talked about that on podcasts in the past, especially when he was, uh, he's, podcasted from there on his cell phone back when you were actually doing the field work which was great so yeah um so that was cool to see uh, it actually wasn't too far from the uh from the conference hotel and uh and bill uh you know i want your your takeaways real quick from from nwac and some of the big things you got from it because i was actually in a booth the whole time and i'm going to talk about some stuff related to that but um, what are some of your takeaways? I mean, you're from Boise, the yeah. Northwest Anthropological Conference is kind of your thing. Um, <laughs> and so is Boise. So, you know, what was your, what are your, what are your big takeaways from the conference? So I used to go to the NWAC when I worked in Seattle as well. Um, you know, it moves around the Northwest next, mm-hmm. next year, it's going to be in Richland, uh, Washington. Uh-huh. And I think the year before that was in Spokane. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it moves through and it tries to do its best to reach every community or part of the Northwest. And, uh, according to the people that are there, Idaho is part of the Northwest. I guess it just depends on where you're at and what kind of work you're doing, whether you're Gray Basin or Northwest, if you're in Boise. Uh, this is the first time that I actually participated fully. Most of the time when I was going to the NWAC, I just went to, you know, other people's talks, uh, mm-hmm. but I never went to any of the pre the previous stuff, but because I had some other research stuff to do and also because it was home. So I got to see my mom, there was more motivation to come early. And so I did get to go the um, first day to a uh, Basque cooking um, uh, workshop. I I mean, I thought originally I thought it was going to be cooking, me cooking, which is something I pretty much not interested in participating in. But uh, it was watching them cook, which was great because then the food ended up awesome. Uh, (laughs) But I don't know if everybody knows that Boise has a pretty large Basque population. The state of Idaho actually has uh, at least... Um, when I recollect last, uh, one of the largest Basque populations in the United States. Mm. And so there's a whole area that's kind of a case study in historic preservation. Actually, I use it in my class as a case study on what communities can do to preserve their heritage. But now there's a whole area where uh, there's several, a Basque museum and several 
Basque restaurants and, and the Basque market. So at the Basque market, they sell all kinds of things from Spain, not just um, north uh, eastern Spain where the Basque country's from, but just Spain in general. And uh, yeah, we went there and I'm used to going to the place. Actually, I was already going to eat there anyway. And then I watched them. They told the whole story of how their interpretation of paella goes down and they made a delicious paella pan there. And we got to try several different kinds of cider and wine that traditional drinks. So, you know, it was actually excellent. It was, yeah. it was a good time. And that was kind of how it started off. Now, a lot of times when I go to the other conferences, I'll do some kind of workshop that's like um, informative, but not very interesting and not really rooted in the local area. So I feel like for this one, they did a great job of choosing a community asset and then finding some kind of a way to uh, have that um, be part of the entire conference. Awesome. Well, that's cool. And, you know, Nevada's got a pretty big Basque uh, population and heritage as well. Just about every small town across Interstate 80 has a has a Basque restaurant in it. And I feel like all archaeologists have their favorites and they're all different. But uh, my, my personal favorite for anybody familiar with is the the Martin Hotel in Winnemucca. And uh, it's, it's off the beaten path. You, you have to kind of know where it's at. They don't have any advertising out on the highway. And uh, and it's not like down the one main drag that Winnemucca has. <laughs> it's it's like a few streets to the south. Um, but I've always loved it. And we were actually there with the entire crew when we were working on, I think, Ruby Pipeline when Obama got elected the first time. We were all in there when that got announced. And uh, that was a pretty cool celebration because it was all of us liberal archaeologists sitting there in the Basque restaurant. And then at the bar, which we could see. Uh, where the TVs were, because we were looking that way, where all the ultra conservatives that are in, you know, backwoods Nevada. <laughs> and uh, uh, definitely a, a very mix of emotions and feelings when uh, when Obama got elected. So, but that was a, that was, I'll always associate Basque food with that moment. <laughs> wow, right on. That's a pretty memorable moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what else did you do at the conference? What other, what other things stuck out in your mind? Yeah, so uh, it was, it was half conference. I actually wasn't given a paper, which is awesome. Uh, I had never gone to a conference before without giving a paper. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like now I need to get to the point where I always do that. <laughs> <laughs> nice and relaxing, huh? <laughs> yeah, because there, there's no stress involved. And uh, you get to just go from thing to thing and check out all these different sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as far as the, the talks that I uh, saw, I mainly focused on a lot of the um, Chinese archaeology and the Japanese archaeology. So uh, I saw a lot of really interesting things. It seems like things are moving um, forward with Japanese American archaeology, specifically pre-internment and a lot of really interesting things happening. And it's in that phase where several projects have happened. So now archaeologists are moving to the next level of, you know, how does this relate to Japanese heritage? And uh, what are some of the bigger questions we can ask? We know there's Japanese sites. We know they're, you know, uh, practicing a different mixture of, um, uh, traditional Japanese activities mixed with uh, other activities forced on them because of their conditions. Mm -hmm. So now where do we go with that, right? A lot of the emphasis has been on the internment period. Now I think archaeologists are kind of going back to that previous period, which is really interesting and formative, you know, in, in the Japanese community. So I saw a lot of those and I um, saw some other talks about other things. Um, uh, one of the, I also went to the poster sessions and one of the things that kind of blew my mind, there's some folks at Western Washington and I can't remember their name. I don't have their card right now. Mm -hmm. They built an app to identify maker's marks. Oh yeah. I talked to those guys. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's using like machine learning algorithms and, uh, and they just trained it up with a bunch of stuff, like with tens of thousands of images that they created about maker's marks. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I was just basically like, this thing needs to be created because the way that it is right now, I've got um, PDFs of the uh, date and manufacturer for all these shirts that yep. I've come across and researched. And so that table that has all these dates, I've built those tables into massive PDF, um, you know, document that I can carry around on my phone, but it doesn't have the pictures. And it also doesn't have the aspect of if you've never used that, you know, kind of artifact, then you still have, you're at square one, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, you still end up having to do all the learning to figure out all those uh, artifact ma maker's marks based on the the manufacturer's uh, symbol or, or pieces yeah, of it, right? Yeah. This 
this totally short circuits it so that in the field you can be dating marks and of course that's i'm only limited to the ones that i've seen several times Mm -hmm. you know the huge huge manufacturers that you find uh the same kind of ceramics you know stuff coming from east liverpool and uh things that are uh coming from japan or uh china that you actually just know that decorative style so it's more of a kind of an uh, experiential um you know southwestern ceramic style where you just have to have seen that times a thousand to even know it and then even then you kind of don't really know the date so uh this app i I, you know i was blown away and i'm like how much does it cost to get this thing (laughs) they're not even selling it really they're theoretical they haven't even made it yet they just use like they were just doing it to see if they could do it the guy who did it is a um uh, electrical engineering uh master or undergrad and the other lady is a um oh man uh i think she might be a um biological anthropology oh, I think you're right. master student yeah. so they're not even they're just kind of yeah let's just see if we can do this and then they ended up doing it and it's kind of like well what does it take for us to get this to an actual app that i can have on my phone yeah. anytime anywhere what do i have to do uh that was that was great do you, do you remember when we interviewed um chris uh oh, i'm forgetting his last name but anyway uh he probably doesn't want his last name on there anyway but anyway a guy named chris on uh he we saw him on facebook and he's out in north carolina and he was creating an app. I think it was called On Point for identifying projectile points. And he was asking for people yeah. to send in photographs of provenienced and typed projectile points. So he knew where it was and he knew what it was called regionally. So he could add it into a system and train it. And he was basically, I mean, he created the UI for it and he created the website and everything. But it, the the underlying machine that was allowing that to run was pretty much Google AI, you know, Google's AI machine. And uh it sounds like what these guys have created, the ones you talk to and the ones I talk to, um, they created their own thing that is doing that. And, you know, it's it's making it all up on its own and doing the whole thing, which is great because I like having that one architecture that they've created because you can put anything into that. If you want to stop teaching it ceramics, we can start teaching it. Let's teach it something else. Let's teach it bottle, uh, identi- you know, bottle manufacturer marks. Let's let's teach it. uh you know, whatever the hell we want to teach it. We can teach it anything. It's just machine learning. So I like the idea of where that could be going. And I'd like to see that kind of technology into a digital site recording application at some point in the future. Yeah. And they were saying that really the the thing that takes the most time is um, taking all the different photos at different lighting settings and locations. Yeah. That's what's taking the most time. Yeah. And then um, setting up the parameters for it. But you can imagine, especially with something like Maker's Marks on historic you know, ceramics, once you've built that once and you set up the conditional recording situation, so they've got, you know, one camera that they're taking at several different angles. Well, if you build an apparatus that has multiple different ca- cameras all going in there, right, then you can imagine that, uh, you know, you once you've set up the code, you can just use it ad nauseum on different, yeah. you know, marks. And, and one of their, they were trying to use, they were saying that they needed a collection of, um, uh, different so you need they were saying that they were looking for places that had 11 of the same exact mark because the mark itself is it's different it's not all consistent with the same ink they all have different um you know running where the ink has ran or it's right. distorted or it didn't quite get so they were saying then they're, they're looking for ceramics that have 11 11 of the same vessel with the same maker's mark so that they can do that several different times. And I was thinking, or you could just be not 99% accurate. Like you guys are trying and just be probably 70% accurate be and uh, just take them from, <laughs> yeah, just take them from the book or from, you know, some uh, web image on uh, uh, ceramic marks for collectors yeah, and, and then just build it that way until you can actually get access to these massive collections in uh, Ohio or mm-hmm. in the UK and then you get a situation where you can actually get 11 of the same exact vessel, 11 of the same mark, and then move up from 70% accurate to 99%. Because their stuff was, it's just basically telling you the probability that that tiny piece of the mark is from that manufacturer. Yeah. So, you know, they could it could be at 70% accuracy or even less, but all of theirs were way up in the 90s, right? <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty interesting, I talked to them for a long time, they said that after they take each image once they've consolidated one and then they digitally break it mm. into a random pattern that the the um, AI is creating the pattern of how it would break. 
so that it'll it'll be a fragment like a jpeg fragment wow. and then from that that's how it's putting it together to figure out the likelihood that it belongs to a certain manufacturer nice that's that's pretty cool yeah i i told him something similar regarding the uh the percentages because i mean the guy's an engineer so you know anything less than 99.9 percent is simply unacceptable to an engineer usually <laughs> but uh i was like listen as field archaeologists especially if we're doing this in the field I was like, if, if it was, if it was anything less and, you know, 80%, 70%, whatever, but returned to me a list of maybe four options, you know, that said, Hey, we're 70% confident. It's one of these four things. I was like, that saves me from flipping through 10,000 pages of stuff and, and trying to go through. I mean, if I have the actual mark, I can probably find it relatively quickly, but if I just have a fragment of it and your machine knows what that fragment could possibly be attached to that eliminates, you know, all those other possibilities for me. And, you know, even, even returning a handful is better than returning, um, nothing at all. Or, you know, I mean, one would be great, but if you return five still better than returning a thousand. So. Yeah. And I was also telling them that in the, in the confirmation of when it says it's 70%, you actually just put the annotation from leaner 1989 or whatever it is, or God in the actual book or Kowalski and Kowalski. Those you know, books that I've spent hours and hours, right? Because you're still going to end up having to write about the manufacturer and, you know, the distribution and all that other stuff. If it's an actual site Mm -hmm. and you're trying to go beyond just, there are ceramics and they are from 1885 and you're, you're trying to move to the next part about consumer choice and behavior, you're still going to end up having to go back and read that stuff on the ceramic anyway. But having that citation when you're filling out the form in the field or when you're, you know, uh, writing about the site uh, and recording it, that saves you a lot of time. I mean, later on, the historical archaeologist is going to have to do that extra step, but this gets you there faster. And also the other key is, I don't know how many people are trained in historical archaeology that end up in CRM, but I would say it's a minority. So a lot of people are just bungling along like, all right, I guess... Maybe not bungling, right? But they're just <laughs> looking at things and saying, oh, that's ceramic. Yeah, that looks old. Okay, it's old ceramic. And then taking some photos and then saying, hey, Bill, can you tell me how old this is? And you're shaking your head like, what is it? Where did you even figure it out? What, what are you doing? What is that? No, I barely can even see that. And they're like, oh, well, great. Well, good, you know, great help you are as a historical archaeologist. I mean, it'd be the same as me grabbing a flake and saying, hey, can you tell me how old that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this definitely helps. Yeah, Absolutely. Doug, go ahead. Yeah. You, have you guys seen that? Um, oh, it's probably been an article or maybe they made it into a website about like which jobs are going to be replaced by robots at some point in the future. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Well, it, there's been a bunch of articles going around about, you know, what's the probability of your job being basically taken over by a, a robot? And, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, by 2030, most taxi drivers will be gone because, um, was it, you know, God, over. Google, uh, Tesla, yeah. pretty much every other car maker is now trying to do automatic driving cars and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things is, you know, archaeology, we're, we're safe because, you know, uh, our job is not likely to be outsourced to um, to robots anytime soon. And by robots, really, computers. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I'm not actually so sure on that. Like, we're usually said we're going to be safe, but things like this, um, you could apply it to a lot of different things. And essentially, you, you're taking away a lot of... Um, a lot of the sort of built-up skill levels that you need. And so in a sense, archeology span could be ripe for automation at some point in the future. I, I definitely think a lot of our tasks as archeologists um, will be taken over by, you know, some sort of computer program. I mean, we're already, we're already doing that. I mean, we're not, we're not hand mapping in the field anymore. We're doing that on a GPS, you know, we're not uh, a lot of our mapping tasks have been taken over by computers. That's an easy one to see because we used to plot maps on an actual topo map and, or plot sites on an actual topo map and, and figure out the location from there. Now it's all done in a GIS and we just accept that. And um, now somebody still has to run that GIS. So it wasn't actually taken over by a computer entirely, but a lot of the difficulty of it was. And I think that's where, we're going to come in as um, a lot of the 
difficult tasks that we do are going to be simplified, but you're still going to need a human in the mix to do some things. So do, do you guys think that's going to change CRM employment though in 20, 30 years in the sense like right now, most, most employers, you know, at least put it in the job requirement must have a degree in anthropology, archeology span or related field or something like that. But essentially mm-hmm. if you got a bunch of these apps, you actually wouldn't really need anyone to have a degree or to be an archaeologist. You might have like say one archaeologist and then you hire a bunch of temps who you send out with a tablet of some sort with all the apps they need. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even then, you know, things that like pedestrian survey, um, so I could, I could see shovel testing. Yeah. You kind of have to keep digging um, and that's not something that's going to be easily automated, but you right. know, you could possibly do a lot, especially in the Western United States, you could probably replace a lot of pedestrian surveys with drones at some point in the future yes. and then just have a map of potential objects that someone needs to go pick up, scan with their uh, tablet. And then that's it. Cause I, I mm-hmm. you know, a good portion of our work is just sort of walking over areas and spotting stuff, but the technology is already there um, to be able to spot stuff by using a drone. Um, computer powering power is still needs to get there, but at some point we may not have that many more CRM archaeology jobs. Or do you guys think it'll go a different way in sometime in the future? Well, I think. You know, we talk about this a lot in the Archaeotech podcast, so if anybody's interested in that, go check out the uh, Archaeotech podcast. But um, I, I think it's it's a different way of looking at it, uh, Doug, which is it's not necessarily looking at machines to take over the jobs we're currently using. It's looking at doing the jobs we're currently doing differently. And what I mean by that is, yes, you're right. Drones, I've, I've considered drone survey. I've done it a little bit. Um, and the computing power is actually there to do these things. It's just not being applied to archaeology, and it's way cost prohibitive to apply to archaeology. So maybe it's not there from a cost and everyday person standpoint. But that being said, your point on like shovel tests and digging and stuff like that, you're right. I don't think we're ever going to have a machine digging a shovel test. That just seems ridiculous. If we had robots sophisticated enough to actually dig shovel tests, I would hope that by that point, we actually have subsurface detecting technology, like a like an earth CT scan kind of thing, where we can actually just see what's under the ground without digging it up. And then you're going to need somebody to come in and dig it up. And maybe that task will be, uh, will be able to automate later on with, you know, some sort of robotic technology. I mean, you're talking way down the road, of course. Um, but uh, so I wouldn't say it's not not possible at all, but I think it's more likely we're going to be able to see and avoid sites without excavating them at all. And I think that's going to destroy CRM archaeology jobs. I mean, absolutely destroy them because most of what we do right now is the boots on the ground, walking over sites and seeing stuff. The actual excavation, the actual working, very little of that's actually done uh, compared to the phase one survey aspect. And the phase one survey stuff is the thing I think is going to be the first to go. And you're going to be left with this group of archaeologists that is just a, a small contingent <laughs> that, that goes out and does the ground truthing. So, hey, let's uh, let's take a break real quick, guys, and pick this up on the other side because we've already gone pretty long on this one. All right, back in a second. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Are you tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. 
All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back to the CRM Mark Podcast, episode 135. And when we left off, we were talking about uh, drones and robots taking our jobs and then had a very long discussion about it uh, outside the recording, which we probably should have recorded. However, um, I, I think uh, I'll wrap up my comment on this just by saying I think there will always be a human element in archaeology just by the nature of it's the study of humans, and we will always have a human element. That being said, a lot of the stuff that we do that is, um, I guess, in exploratory, which is survey, excavation, things like that, some of that stuff could be made simpler or automated. Um you know, when we're able to look below the ground uh, in a little more detailed fashion, like we can with ground penetrating radar. Uh, we all know what that is. Uh, resistivity, resistivity, magnetometry. We have those things. Um, I've done monitoring projects out here in Nevada where they're using massive trucks uh, to look miles below the ground and very accurately map where different minerals are, specifically probably gold and silver and other stuff. And obviously they can't see small projectile points buried in the ground uh, yet, but that technology is there. Now, you're not going to see that in archaeology anytime soon because Bill brought up in the break, you know, it's, uh, and I think Doug did as well. It's just not economically feasible, feasible to do it for archaeology yet. When it becomes something we can buy off the shelf or purchase from forestry supply, <laughs> then we'll add it to our workflow. But until then, it's uh, it's going to be pretty uh, pretty difficult and, and we're all still going to have jobs. So, that even even the stuff that I'm doing with say Wild Note, which is you know trying to get trying to get paper out of your hands. Some people are like, "You're taking our jobs." No, I'm you know we're actually putting you back in the field so you can get the hell out of the office and stop typing up your site forms like a caveman. That's the only thing. That's not taking your job. That's making it so you can actually take more jobs and do more field work uh, as an employer because that's where the money is made. And a CRM firm is actually doing the field work and completing the jobs and doing more work. And the quicker you can get done with one and on to the next, the better. So, okay, let's move on from this topic and talk about something that's uh, ended up being quite polarizing, actually. And I don't know, uh, Doug and Bill, if you've seen this yet, but uh, Luke, uh, and I won't mention his last name because these are closed groups, but uh, Luke in Archaeofield Techs and over in the North American Archaeological Tech Forum, I haven't seen as big a discussion happening over there, but definitely on Archaeofield Techs. If you're a member of that group, go check it out. If you're not, go join it and uh, and check it out. But he posted a question that ended up actually going in a direction I didn't intend it. I didn't see it going <laughs> when I first responded to it. But he said, if you only had the choice between dumping collections or keeping a, quote, digital record, uh, what would you consider to be sufficient for a digital record? So he's not asking if you had to get rid of your collections or collections management, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what he's asking is if if you had a gun to your head and all you could do is keep a digital record of your artifact collection for, let's, let's just say you're a CRM archaeologist, you're a CRM firm, you're doing work on private land. And uh, because if you're doing work on public land, chances are that artifact collection is going somewhere. It's going to a state museum. It's going somewhere. Um, but, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe the agreement is it stays with you. Either way, you've been told to clear out your warehouse and you need to keep your collection digitally. What are you going to do? So... Bill, I want to throw it to you first. Just what are your initial thoughts on that on that question? You've got a gun to your head. You've got to keep your artifacts digitally. What do you do? Well, we don't really need a gun to my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people, we like keeping our collections, though. And if you had to get rid of everything, it makes you start really thinking about, well, what, what do I want to keep about these certain things? Because you might want more data about certain things than others. I don't know. You know? So I'll, I'll just speak. You know, right away, especially thinking about historical art, artifacts, I'd say 
everything that was going to be in an artifact bag has to have a photo, you know, an excellent photo, not just something taken there. You need to actually have the dark room and take a picture of it, at least a few photos, right? So all those right. bags of nail kibbles and stuff, they at least have to have a photo. All the major artifacts need to have a 3D scan and mm-hmm. like you diagnostic could artifacts. Yeah, diagnostic. That's right. Yeah. All the diagnostics for sure. And then also all the whole ones. So all the uh, projectile points, all the matates, all the um, utilized flakes or whatever, they need to have a 3D scan so that you could actually create them again. All right, Doug, what do you think? Um, There's just too much to, I mean, there's a lot. So I know most of the discussion was about, you know, making 3D models and stuff like that, but essentially you're missing out all the chemical uh, elements as well. So if you have an object, um, you know, XRF, I'd imagine, like if, if, you, if you need to get rid of things, yes, a 3D model, photogrammetry, uh, photos of it, but there's so much more you can learn about something than just looking at its physical attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say like at a minimum, you definitely want to do, you know, XRF, figure out all the chemical breakdowns of pretty much every single object that you can. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing stuff as well. And then also I'd say what we're talking about is at the, um, uh, I guess at the sort of visible, what you could see with your your naked eyes, but you know, if you were to talk to a geomorphologist or a geoarchaeologist, they would say, actually, you know, we need slides, probably cross sections of the, of the material. If it's, <laughs> if it's something like that, um, right. so that's a different type of, you know, photograph. And I am pretty sure and you know, our listeners will be able to tell us like, we're probably missing like a whole list of other things we should be taking from, from objects. So, I mean, yeah, if, if you need to get rid of it, definitely store it. But, uh, man, I, I feel like we're missing a lot. And also the reason we kind of store stuff is because at some point in the future, new technology will come along that'll let it, allow us to reanalyze it. So it's not like mm-hmm. we're just kind of holding on to it because we can, um, I know there's all sorts of debates about, you know, when will the future get here and uh, is it worth it and stuff like that. But um, if, if you had to sort of convert your physical to digital, I think there's a lot, a lot of different tests you need to do. Um, yeah. And yeah, it would cost a lot more money. I, I, I'm almost thinking it would cost more money to do all the data capturing that it would to be to store it. Um, actually, I know that's not quite true because storage is incredibly expensive. But um, if you if you had you know gun to your head, you had to get rid of the physical objects. Mm-hmm. I almost think it's cheaper to keep them than to run all the analysis yeah. <laughs> you need to do. Because um, I'm just thinking like, okay, so photogrammetry, yeah, you could probably do a setup drop it into a, you know, they're, they're getting better at that with museums where you just sort of place it on a, a platform, multiple cameras from different angles, you know, it takes a few seconds, but then, you know, XRF. So you'd have to, you know, have an XRF machine. Um, you're going to need someone to, well, I'm not sure if interpret it, but, you know, be able to understand it if those are, if the readings you're taking are accurate, um, geomorphology, collecting slides. So I, I don't know enough about that. Um, mm-hmm. But I assume it is a somewhat, I know that's mainly soil, but they also look at, you know, lithics and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of like a list of like, you know, if, if I had unlimited money and what I would do with a small set of objects um, and all the tests I could run, and, you know, if it's organic, you'd want to do C14, probably multiple C14 dates. Um, well, now, yeah. now let's... Let's let's look back here too, because we got to look at the type of artifact that's being recorded. So, you know, a lot of your historic artifacts. I mean, we wouldn't need to do much of what you're saying to the historic artifacts because, um, you know, 
nine times out of ten, we know what it was. We know what it was used for, especially like bottles and cans and stuff that still have uh, embossing and and uh, and or like lithography and stuff like that on them. I mean, it physically says what it was used for. So doing some sort of chemical analysis on it would not be very useful. Um, a lot of your except, prehistoric artifacts, yes, that would be useful. Except I would well, disagree because with with historical, they get reused, and so you're you're actually trying to see you have essentially a hypothesis of what you believe it is going to be used for. But mm-hmm. it tells you so much more when you find out it wasn't used for that. So like if you pull up that tin can, you're like, okay, it's been opened once. And actually you find out it's been reused. That's a va- mm-hmm. valuable piece of information. And I think if you, you are getting rid of your collection, you'd have to, you'd have to run those tests, even if you are pretty confident, and you know what the results are because Getting the opposite results tell you an incredibly important thing. I, I would say, and this this might just be me, but you know, you you test everything um, because you don't you have a hypothesis, but it's the counter hypothesis that is not the counter hypothesis, but you know the the counter results yeah. that tell you something incredibly interesting. So uh, I don't know. I, I would yeah. say. If you have to get rid of it, you do everything, and it would probably just mean more work. <laughs> Bill, you, you sound like you have something well, to say on this. Yeah, I, my question is, where does this data live for the next two thousand years? Mm-hmm. Right. So, if we have all the stuff, and there's an American Republic in the future that is still somehow keeping all our repositories there, then we still have those things. Those for whatever the ethical conundrums, those European museums that have been around for 300 years, they still have some of those artifacts. So we could ever do those tests again in the future. If you there's there's no way for us to plan right here in 2018 what we're going to need in 3018, or that we'll even have computers that can read those data files. Right. So just like Doug is saying, it's kind of an impossible activity to plan for the future. So all you're basically doing is trying to get what we can get right now. Um, mm-hmm. So then the question would be, where are you going to keep that data for tomorrow? If we're, right. I mean, it's fun for us to keep it all right now, but once that server's full, who's going to take care of that thing 15 years from now, 20 years from now? I used to work for a company that uh, we had to move things to a storage unit and they had a storage unit that was full of, floppy disks and hard drives and all kinds of old, you know, uh, um, windows machines that were 20 years old and stuff that Mm -hmm. they were keeping in storage so that they could access those disks and those files. And whenever they needed to, it was like hiring someone, a a technician to try and fix this 1992 laptop or desktop (laughs) to try and run these things if the hard drive wasn't working. Right. So they were, they were curating all these things with the understanding that maybe one day in the future they're going to need to to uh, use them, which is, I think, pretty solid ethically. But you can imagine if one company that had only been around for about 25 years already had an entire storage unit full, mm-hmm. if that company somehow survived for a 1,000 years. And this was only the data. They had long since given the reports and the artifacts and stuff to the repository. This was only them keeping their own research data of archaeologists who even don't even work there anymore. They had moved on and it was all stored on these other data formats. So that's the other thing. Even if we do collect it all, how are we going to access it a thousand years from now? Yeah. I, I have a comment on that. Um, so it, I, it works at currently the same way digital storage works as for museum storage. So like in a museum and I'm just throwing out a random number. This is not an actual number, but you know, one sort of you know file box worth of archive material that you put into a museum may cost you a thousand or two thousand dollars, and the physical space doesn't cost that much. The the people doing um, placing it there doesn't cost that amount of money. What happens is is that money is then put into a um, a trust or a fund that then continues to, to produce. Um, money to pay for that basically for all eternity. So the mm. reason like museums and curation is so expensive is because you're actually paying for that to last for, you know, a 2000 years. And the same with digital, like TDAR is quite expensive. ADS is quite expensive. 
if you're doing your digital material, but that's basically saying is they're taking, you know, 95% of whatever you pay to have it archived and then putting it into a fund that will, you know, continue to turn over two or 5% per year and basically be able to pay it. And so that when you're properly doing it, it's basically, it can last for forever or mm-hmm. as long as, you know, a country's around and it's stable enough to have materials and stuff. I think you run into real issues with what Bill's mentioning with, you know, companies or universities will try to do that themselves. And that's, that's not the right way to do it because you, you haven't put in that investment and you don't have a fund to constantly be there. But in a sense, um, the, you know, curating um, materials and stuff should be self-sustaining um, if right. done correctly. And there's like massive um, organizations and guidance and, you know, books upon books about how to do it correctly. So uh, if you talk to like an actual curator, they'll say that's not so much a problem. It's actually just getting people to pay for, um, <laughs> to do it properly. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's the problem we run into with our curation crisis is, um, especially with like, you know, a lot of the government places, you know, they basically didn't get people, they accept anything. And so they yeah. haven't, they haven't got a fund there to actually keep them up, you know, into the future. So, uh, the national park system, they created a bunch of warehouses without thinking that, you know, in 20 or 30 years, they're going to have to pay for those warehouses to be renovated and the objects moved and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that's where the real problem comes in. It's not a matter of space. It's a matter of actually properly paying for it. And the problem is, is for the last hundred years or so of archaeology, people didn't actually think about that and didn't properly uh, pay for the archive. Right. Okay. Lots more to say on this and we'll do it on the other side of our last break. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia has launched a professional online master's program built by and for cultural heritage management practitioners. The thesis-based MA or coursework-only graduate certificate both offer integrated study of HRM's ethical, legal, business, and research priorities. The MA thesis requirements comply with registered professional archaeologists and other jurisdictional standards. This is the perfect graduate program for bachelor-level CRM practitioners ready to make a career commitment, but not ready to relocate or quit their job. We have advertised for SFU in the past, and we had a long podcast about SFU's program, and I highly recommend it. If you're looking to get a graduate degree in cultural resource management, this is the way to go. Apply today at www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology. That's www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology to take your career to new levels today. All right, we're back for the final segment of episode 135 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, and we are talking about basically what do you do with uh, your collections and recording them digitally and things like that. And Doug, finish out what you were saying in the last segment for us. Yeah, it was just basically to say is, you know, even if you convert it all to digital, there's still going to be a significant cost to maintain that digital as Bill brought up. And I'm not sure it's actually the cheaper option to go digital because, you know, as we were talking about all the tests we'd want to run just to store that data and then being able to store that data, I I don't know. I'm, I'm sure someone has looked at this or someone in archives could t- better tell us, but... I don't think it's it's going to make that big of a difference, um, you know, 
gun to our heads if we had to do it, if it would actually really change a lot and still would probably cost a small fortune. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a non-trivial problem (laughs) is what do you do? Like Bill said, who's going to store all the data? And like you said, Doug, who's going to pay for it? Um, You know, I mean, that's that's actually not a trivial problem. However, I, I guess I'm trying to look a little bit more into the future on this. And I, I fully am on board with uh, understanding the fact that different analytical techniques will come on down the line. And if we don't have those artifacts, if we don't have those collections to analyze, then, um, you know, then we won't be able to do that analysis unless we could take an actual, unless the, the scan that we did was an actual molecular scan. Like we were actually to reproduce every single atom, including the residue analysis and things like that. If we were to reproduce everything, which I don't know that we can yet, uh, at least not for archaeology, it's, it's just not possible. But here's kind of another question related to all this. First off, when I read that question out to you guys, you assumed that the artifacts were being destroyed. Okay. Um, you assumed that the artifacts were actually just going to be thrown into a trash pit somewhere or destroyed or whatever, so that they wouldn't actually be available for future analysis. But where the conversation on Facebook ended up going, and what Luke was kind of saying is, is you know, as a CRM archaeologist running a CRM firm, actually being the first person to uh, the, the front line, so to speak, as of digging these artifacts up and having these things is... Um, now what do we do with them? And I don't think destruction or digital are your two options. It's not a binary choice. I think as an archaeologist, if you want to have the ability to analyze these things further, you can do as much digital archiving as you can of them. But then often, we, we often don't even have out here in the West the ability to keep them regardless. I mean, we send them to the state museum or, you know, if you're back east, it might go to a Native American group or some other group that um, that is actually has custody over the land or, or ancestral um, ancestral relationship to the land and it becomes their responsibility. Now, we don't know what they're going to do with it. Maybe they're going to rebury it. Maybe they're going to destroy it. Maybe they're going to put it in a museum. But I don't think destruction is necessarily, uh, you know, the only option besides scanning. Also, uh, referencing both of what you guys said, I guess it's looking at the feasibility of doing this. And the only thing that's that's in my head is the warehouse from Indiana Jones. I know it's in every archaeologist's head every time we look at a collection of artifacts. <laughs> it's like, you know, where the where the Ark was stored. Here's the thing. If you guys want to save all that stuff, if, if everybody listening to this wants to save everything, that's great. But that's still a huge problem. It's a database problem. It's a management problem. It's a collections problem. It's a It's a massive warehouse of things. And if you want to be able to analyze that ridiculous bottle fragment from 1934 from this from this no not this nothing site in Nevada where it takes two artifacts to make a site and you've got this bottle base that you're like man i remember that bottle base where the hell did i put that and it's in one of 7000 boxes and it's one of 500 artifacts in that box if you don't have a good system for actually finding that it's as good as gone anyway so you know Having somebody to manage all that, and I'm not saying it's impossible, of course. I'm just saying it's also not a trivial problem to physically keep everything. Where if you did have it digitally and you did have it, if you have it digitally, chances are just be the, the mere fact of recording it, quote, digitally, whatever that means, and putting all its digital stuff into one folder, you should be able to find it a little easier just by running a search. But running a search on a warehouse is way more difficult and still requires the same level of organization. So if you're going to organize it that way anyway, to organize your physical collection, why not attach all the digital data to it as well? And I think as archaeologists, we have a a responsibility to do photogrammetry and to record as much digital information about an artifact that is sitting in our physical collection because, you know, especially like California, California is going to bust off and fall in the Pacific at any moment now. So, you know, all those collections over there, sorry, Bill, but all those collections over there, they're going to be in the ground. And if they were in some sort of cloud storage, then we at least still have some of the data. Right, Bill? Uh, and I'm looking for homes, to too, ocean, man. Bill. I was going to say, I'm looking for houses, too, right now. Like, we're going to go check out houses today. Doesn't make me feel too good. Well, maybe we'll put floaties on all yeah. the collections, and then they'll just float back up so the guy like you can come along. And while, while you're laughing that's, at that's all right. of us drowning in the water, save the artifacts. <laughs> save the artifacts. I love it. Yeah, no, I think oh, I, I exactly man. know what you're you're right. And that's, you know, we started off talking about those um, PDFs of uh, um, 
maker's marks that I'd found and I save them in my phone, right? Yeah. The reason why I started doing that is because all those tables are in reports. And as the rep- I started to write more and more reports and started to do artifact analysis for more other, you know, other projects at my company, I got to the point where I couldn't really remember what report I had written about those ceramics anymore. So I started to save all the tables in one in, uh, PDF that was just searchable by bottles, um, by ceramics. Mm-hmm. And that was how I was able to keep all those things together. So I was in the field, I could actually identify more ceramics, right? So, right. you know, I guess we're, we're coming back around again. The reason why I even have those is because of the situation you've just described. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, the uh, to, to turn this around just a little bit, because I think we've kind of beat this up uh, quite a bit. One of the another direction that the that the Facebook post went and I want to get your guys' impression on this in the last 10 minutes of the show here. Um, another direction that this went was some people were assuming that you were saying that archaeologists shouldn't curate artifacts. Um, and I was actually saying that too. Um, I was saying that it's not the job necessarily. I mean, if nobody else is going to do it, sure, we should hold on to those collections as long as we can. You know, still, I would record everything digitally, like I said, just for safety to have a backup, basically. Um, not 100% backup, but at least a backup. And, but, I was saying that we should move away. We should be moving in a direction where archaeologists are not the stewards of these collections. Our job as archaeologists, just look at the definition of the word archaeology. Our job as archaeologists is to uncover and interpret the past and to inform the world about that, right? Through our papers, through books, through these podcasts, through whatever media you can. That's our job. And our job isn't to necessarily hold on to collections. Now, you could argue that our job would be to hold on to collections so we can reinterpret and reinform later on. I understand that. But when it comes down to the fact that we can barely afford to do our jobs from a regulatory standpoint, adding on curation at the same time when there's other people whose only job it is to do curation. I mean, people go to go to college to learn how to do curation and to do it properly. Um, archaeologists do not go to college to learn how to do that. We go to college to learn how to interpret the past and to write about it. And that's what, well, at least that's what we're supposed to do. No, I don't think so. There's archaeologists that work for museums. Um, Sure. But they're taught, they're taught at the museum how to do curation. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're not, they're not museum studies grads maybe, but I I I don't think it's a one or one four, right? You know, we need to have a lot of different skills. And so someone who works in the lab and is preparing um, collections for curation while they're a grad student or undergrad or whatever, they're, they're better equipped to handle this. So if that individual goes on to be a field archeologist, it's not like she's forgotten all the stuff that she learned about how to prepare artifacts. Right. And, and like you were saying, it goes the other way. If you're a field archeologist, then you work at the museum, you learn all the skills that you need to curate. Plus it's part of a continuum too, where, you know, we're responsible for the stuff in the field, but then as the ones who dug it all up, we also have a responsibility to make sure that that's either passed on responsibly to someone who's going to curate them. Even if that's us, I mean, I know that you're saying that companies shouldn't be curating artifacts and they should not, they should be going to, uh, unfortunately that Indiana Jones warehouse, right. (laughs) In California. But, (laughs) but, uh, uh, it's part of a continuum of everyone having responsibilities and by us working together, we actually, um, uh, do a better justice to these collections, right? It's, it's the same thing of, you know, Hey, we'll dig it up and we'll have them figure it out in the lab. No, come on. We have to do our best out here in the field. I know it's easier to just pass it on to the lab, but the lab doesn't have tons of extra people or time. And half the time they don't even have the budget we do. So if we can help out the lab the best, then things end up being easier for them and they can do a better job. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we have responsibilities to the stuff that we dig up and that includes curation. Sure. Yeah. I think it also makes you a better archeologist. If you have that, even if it's just basic knowledge of curation, um, it's kind of like, you know, you become a better field archeologist once you've written a report because you know what data you're collecting and how it connects into a bigger picture um, and that helps you become a better field archaeologist because you, when you're out there and you're doing the work, you understand where it's going and why you're collecting the data and how it's going to be used. Uh, so you can make those decisions in the field with an eye towards, oh, this is going to affect this later. We should do this. Um, and I think that's the same way with curation. If you understand you know, 
the problems of curation, you'll understand, you know, better how to deal with that in the field, you know, how to preserve the artifact or, or what you should be looking for, or, you know, what's the most expensive things to curate and thus the things you probably should try to at the most avoid, you know, most archeologists are looking at as collect it all. They'll figure it out in the lab and they'll figure <laughs> it out, you know, in the curation. Um, and you know, the God will know his own, uh, or her <laughs> own. Uh, but that's not a good way to do that sort of stuff. So I think it, it would make you a better archeologist if you have that range of skills and you know, the full picture of what yeah. archaeology is and you're not just so nearly with your blinders on focusing on one thing i mean you can have a specialism and definitely we should all have specialisms and be an expert in that area but you should be able to see how your specialism fits into the bigger picture um yeah. and then also uh just if we could put this in the show notes um people should check out sustainable archaeology uh, yep, we keep, uh rag- yeah we keep ragging on the um the Indiana Jones warehouse, but you know, a lot of those repositories, especially the new ones are incredibly advanced. So I've, I've seen talks by these guys um, up in, Ca- in Canada and like every box has a QR code. Everything's in the computer. They do scans. Um, it is like, it's like space age sort of story. <laughs> wow. Uh, Should like, get them on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And I also, yeah, I, you look at, I was like, looking at the pictures. I want artifacts to go there. It looks like they're happy. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, so, yeah, there are definitely those old school Indiana Jones style places, but a lot of the new modern places, man, like they are, they are cool. Well, I, I, my, my follow up to all this, uh, to both you, uh, Doug and Bill, are I think, I think we are actually in agreement, although it doesn't sound like we are, because you guys are talking more about the present, um, and I'm talking more about the future. Like, where should we be looking forward? What should what should our goal be? What should our end standard be? Because I, I fully agree that people should have um, curation knowledge because it is our responsibility right now. I'm just saying I don't think it should be, but it is actually our responsibility to make sure to be the custodians of these artifacts until they're in a good home. And whether that home is, you know, my garage or my warehouse is a CRM archaeology podcast. Uh, shit, my garage as a as a CRM archaeologist or or my warehouse or whatever. Or the state museum, or you know, a Native American repository out here. If we if we give them back to them, if that's the appropriate thing to do, wherever those need to go, we are the stewards of that artifact when it leaves the ground until it goes in the box. You know, I mean, we are, and then and then beyond, actually, uh, in some cases. So, I, I fully agree with that. Uh, we need to have those skills. We need to have that knowledge because no one else is doing it. But that's again where I want to see the problem fixed is. It's, I don't want to pass it off on somebody else to do, but it really is. Archaeologists have a full plate on what we're doing to begin with. And, you know, turning us into um, basically museum curators at the same time is not exactly appropriate. There's people whose actual job is to do that. And, uh, you know, I think we should share skills like you guys are saying, but I don't know. I don't want to be a curator. It's just, uh, it's too much, too much responsibility. Honestly, <laughs> I'd rather just analyze, interpret and send it off on its way. Uh, you know, let's, let's get that thing going. Um, and, but it would be nice, like you said, to, to be able to access it at some later date, uh, if something new comes up or something like that. But again, I, I think the, the bigger picture here too is, is what are the chances that, somebody's going to have to go back and look at an old tin can that I collected um, or an old bottle base that I collected. Actually, luckily in Nevada, we don't collect that stuff unless it's an actual excavation. But, you know, even uh, like I, I heard somebody say not too long ago, the Nevada State Museum, like if they're if they get one more Elko corner notch, they're going to shoot somebody like, <laughs> like they've got thousands of them. How many do they need? All know? of them. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but I, w- I would have points. to say, though, and once again, going back to the discussion about Japanese archaeology, folks are going back and looking at these collections, including ones that, you know, people like me did as CRM projects with a, a tiny budget and did the best that we could. Ten years later, 15 years later, they're revisiting these whole collections. And in there, not just badass Japanese ceramics are, you know, tons of uh, animal bones, tons of... Uh, I mean, food bones, tons of uh, broken glass fragments and all kinds of stuff. And you have to wade through that stuff to get to those other artifacts and the databases, right? And each time someone looks at these collections and these assemblages and writes another article and does another project, it moves you further along, right? 
So we may end up in this mm-hmm. stage where we have all these Japanese sites and they're just redundant and we've done many, many things. And, and now we kind of don't collect the, you know, broken down uh, animal bone and, and all the other stuff. Right. But we have to get there by going somewhere first. And I think maybe you're right with collecting all the Elko notches that are notch points. Yeah. You know, those are pretty common. However, they have a name in Arizona and they're called something different in uh, Arizona than they are in Nevada and Idaho. And they're called something different elsewhere. And the Elko side notch point is part of a much larger, I guess, if you talk about culture area, right? So what, why don't we go back and look at some of these and, and try to talk about, you know, craftsmanship? Is this just individual people who are working on these things? Can you find that they're mass produced? Or is this just a style that people use across a wide area during the archaic? I mean, Going back yeah. to those points that were all collected all over the place or going back to places like sustainable archaeology that have tons of scans and tons of images. We can do metrics. We can look and see. Are we finding a characteristic where there's just a couple of individuals who are really skilled in cranking out all these points that we've all called desert side notch, Elko side notch? Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, I mean, old collections. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to somebody, – somebody actually tried to call me out for saying – there's value in old collections, and you're saying we shouldn't keep them. I, I'm not saying that at all. Again, uh, old collections are incredibly valuable, even just from an educational standpoint. So people that are grad students or undergrads can go back and have something to, you know, go back and maybe look at in a, with fresh eyes with a new generation and in a different way. It's just not our job to 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 keep those old collections. That's my only point. And also referencing all the stuff like like you said bill i've i've seriously thought about um very long and hard about the um the elko corner notch problem i call it <laughs> when i started seeing so many out here because i've worked all over the country you've worked all over the country a lot of people listening to this um to this podcast have worked all over the country and we've seen that exact same projectile point and you you can give me any shape of point you can give any CRM archaeologist that's been all the place any shape of point and say, yeah, I saw that in Vermont. I saw that in Florida. I saw that in whatever. The only way we're going to be able to actually do this big analysis and answer those big questions is if we record them digitally and we put them in a database so computers can chew on this stuff and look at the massive amount of information. Going back and pulling that Elko projectile point out of the box is not going to do as much to answer that question as really you know, having a computer just crunch all the numbers and say, man, look at these patterns we never even saw were there. That's what I want to see. Yeah, I, I hope it gets to that point because the Elko Corner Notch is a perfect example of that archaic thing. Yeah. And, and the the things that are happening during the archaic in, you know, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, big right. swaths of Colorado, chunks of uh, eastern Washington, uh, eastern California, that's a large culture area. And then to see a similar, uh, you know, as a historical archaeologist, to me, they're always kind of projectile point. Oh, wait, Clovis. Oh, wait, no, not a Clovis. Okay, anything else is just projectile point, right? But then Clovis start, or not Clovis. Yeah, it's either Clovis or just something else, right? So when I find the projectile points, I like finding them because I don't really find them that much. But, uh, you know, to me, they almost always look the same. But then every single prehistoric person will talk to you about, you know, things they found in Alabama or Arkansas. No, mm-hmm. no, it's it's slightly different. I'm kind of shaking my head like maybe the guy was a lefty and maybe mostly right. righties did it in the in the Great Basin, but then only some left-handers did it. And so maybe that's why it's because it's barely different. To me, they all look barely different. Yeah. Yeah. When you start taking all those like, you know, 20 different measurements you can make on a point, I think we're missing the point, so to speak. No pun intended. But anyway, Ooh, uh, that's, that's uh, I know, I know. Um, well, and that's where, you know, 3D scans actually come in handy because you can you can just have a computer crunch it and say and give you a percentage similarity to another point. Like how similar is this actually to another point? And a computer would be able to tell you that. So anyway, I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, we could go a long ways on this. Um, if you have any comments on this, I'm sure you will let us know. And when I post this in Archeo Field Text, like I usually do, uh, it'll spark that conversation yet again, I'm sure, hopefully. And uh, anyway, if you do comment on this, thank you for listening this far, because a lot of people just read the title of the podcast and then write an angry note (laughs) saying, you're completely wrong. Did you listen to the show? Okay. All right. So again, thanks, everybody. And uh, when we 
actually, as this has come out, we've already been to the SAAs, so hopefully we said hi to you. But hopefully also we'll have some stuff to present on the next episode from the SAAs in Washington, D.C. And if we did say hi to you, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Adios. Don't even get a countdown anymore. Man. Goodbye. We got a good. <laughs> That's one for the ages. <laughs>